Welcome back to Public Health Plus. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. This is going to be very spicy. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, we haven't even said anything other than our names and you're already... First sentence. Ready to go. Okay. So American conservatives, right? Because this is the bonus, I'm going to just name them. American conservatives have been trying to undermine public school for multiple decades now. And one of the themes that they continuously bring up erroneously and sometimes pathetically to justify their crusade is the idea that there are bad public schools that are failing our children, so we need to purge them and replace them. Yeah. So we're going to put aside the issues of how these schools are, right? So that is an issue, but that's not the issue that I want to focus on right now. I'm sure there are bad schools out there, right? I'm positive that there are bad schools out there. Or maybe badly run schools or badly run school right, districts, right? right? But- like Baltimore has a bad rap of <laughs> right. having folks running the school system where money is not always going where it's meant to go mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. no one can account for where their where the dollars money are, right? is because it's going into some people's pockets. So there are definitely problems. Mm-hmm. Problems and corruption, but let's put aside that right now. I want to point out that there's a fundamental flaw to this argument of schools are failing our kids, so we need to purge them and replace them because this is a correlation, not causation issue, right? We mentioned this in the main episode. Those bad schools are more often than not in places of concentrated disadvantage, right? So what they are suggesting is that they think school is a magic bullet that could fix poverty like they think they could fix whatever disadvantage that that child is experiencing like what they're suggesting like the underlying argument is for them is that if the school is good enough it can completely fix a child which is just not yeah talk about putting too many eggs in one basket right like there's there's so many other things that impact a student's success in the educational system. There are all of those social determinants of health that we've been talking about throughout the show. Housing instability, high quality foods, access to safe spaces, you know, like there are just so many things that impact. And I appreciate you raising the correlation, not causation piece, because when you look at low performing schools, or bad schools and low success students, we have, through the course of the history of our country, made policy decisions, investment decisions, and all these pieces that concentrate disadvantage and disinvestment into certain areas, which are areas that are predominantly made up of Black and other minority communities and individuals, excuse me. And so we have funneled a ton of sort of low resource issues into communities. And then we're like, oh, well, your schools suck too. Well, yeah, Yeah. the the schools suck because, (laughs) you know, you, and ah, okay, sorry. I reject the premise of the statement. Yeah, me too. Because you, you can't like, first of all, a lot of schools in a lot of places are funded through property tax, which means if you are in an area where the property tax is low, the school does not get as as much funding, right? And there's a huge discrepancy between the amount of money some school, some area gets versus another. Well, and it's not just low property tax. There's the flip side, which is the issue in Baltimore, which is there were tons and tons of houses built, property taxes were set, manufacturing jobs left, a bunch of other things happened in Baltimore City, white flight out of the urban areas into suburban areas. So then there are lots of houses, but nobody living in them. So then fewer people available to pay property taxes. And so property taxes increased. People like, well, I'm not going to buy a house in Baltimore. So then property taxes increase. It's just like this never ending (laughs) cycle. So that in Baltimore City, property taxes are really high, really high in, in some places. 
And it's not just an issue of low property tax. It can be a property tax that's too high on a small population. Yeah. And this is just something that to say that bad schools are failing our kids and that's the problem, you're just ignoring the fact that poverty is a problem. You're ignoring the fact that stable housing is a problem. You're ignoring so many factors outside of schools that is so important to a child's academic success. I'm sorry that so many of my examples always come back to guns, but that, you know, that's where I spend most of my time thinking about this. A lot of folks are talking right now about rising crime, rising homicide rates, and they're blaming progressive approaches on <laughs> crime prevention such that, you know, we're, we're being soft on crime. And so all these people are doing all these issues. The same time, they're ignoring the mechanism that is commonly being used in these crimes, which is firearms. So they're talking about high homicide rates. They're talking about high crime and violence. But they are not in any way, shape or form talking about guns that are being used as a mechanism for this. And so it's just really frustrating when people are like, oh, look over here. Like, this is the problem. It's the bad schools. Don't pay any attention to the systematic disadvantage and concentrated disinvestment that we've put into these communities to set them up to fail in the first place. Right. Basically, the point of this is that school cannot fix poverty. You cannot expect a school to turn a child's life around without addressing all the other factors outside of school, right? They cannot achieve their full potential. School cannot operate with inadequate funding. You can't undermine public school and then complain about it, right? That's just not how that's just not how it works. You can't be like, let's actively try to make this a terrible thing. And then we say it won't work. No, but we do this so commonly. We say, here's a program, here's a policy, here's whatever. Some people don't like it. And so they say, well, we are going to make it much harder for it to work. And then when it doesn't work, they're like, well, see, see, it didn't work. You and you're didn't like, no, it. you, you yeah. made it not work. Perfect example, not education, but an example I hope a lot of folks are familiar with. The Affordable Care Act. There was an individual mandate. There were all these pieces, Medicaid expansion, all the these elements that were supposed to increase coverage and lead to improved health outcomes. And then Republicans, because it was Republicans, you can look back. I'm, I'm not throwing shade at anybody. I'm just stating facts. They decided to undermine the Affordable Care Act by challenging the individual mandate component and got nuked by the Supreme Court. Hello, hello. Post-production MJ here. So the individual mandate was upheld by the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court did struck down the Medicaid expansion, which was an important part of the Affordable Care Act. These two things were not the only ways Republican lawmakers attempted to undermine the ACA. They also attacked it from a funding perspective as well. We will release a bonus episode about the Medicaid gap very soon. And then people are like, oh, well, the Affordable Care Act didn't achieve its goals. Well, it, it did a lot of really good things. Yeah, it didn't do as many as it would have otherwise because you came through and made it impossible for it to do what it was designed to do. So like, same thing, you cannot talk out of both sides of your mouth. You are saying, oh, well, these schools aren't working, so we should replace them. Well, one of the reasons those schools aren't you working well is work. because you've done everything in your power to make them not work. All right, sour cream, sour cream. <laughs> yes, indeed. Another thing is like teachers cannot teach if they're not supported. This is something that we'll return to in a future episode. But And then there's this huge crusade of like, we need to fire the bad teachers and replace them based on metrics like test scores. We can't possibly replace the teachers because we don't pay them enough. So we can't recruit the best possible people to yeah. be teachers. We burn them out by not paying them enough and making them work too hard. And then we want to throw them out. Yeah. Education is one of those things that if you try to take a capitalistic approach to it, which is let's test. And if they don't meet those test scores, then that's 
replace them like what you do in a company. If you take that attitude, you're not going to have concrete, cohesive teacher base that stays in the community and actively tries to help the kids. And then, you know, you're a professional educator. There are some classes that are great and there are some classes that are not so great as in the people there. And then you, it's just, you know, sometimes you roll the dice and you get a good class and sometimes you roll the dice and you get a bad class. If you were to judge a teacher's performance by yearly increases in test score, they're not going to meet it because that's just not how it works, right? You can't, Anyway, another time, I just want to raise this now because this is something I've been thinking a lot about Mm -hmm. since I'm actively teaching my class during this term. There's a, a lot of good research showing that the act of giving students grades like crushes the joy of learning out of them we know from firsthand experience (laughs) yeah there's a great book and there's the happiness lab with dr Lori santos she does a whole episode on this about you know if you give kids a task a challenging task like a word scramble and you say you know do this you know how how well can you do how many can you do like what do you think you know and it's framed as like a fun activity they'll do more of them. They'll do harder versions of it. The moment you tell them, okay, now you have to do this for a grade, they do the easiest ones that they can find and they do only enough to make sure that they get whatever they need to do for a grade. It's very natural. So by assigning grades to people and sort of the fear of a bad grade leads people to stop learning for the joy of learning and really changes your approach. And so some other time, so thinking about test scores and metrics, we need to have a conversation about grading and what it's doing to us. For sure. (laughs) Also the stupidly long summers, like that's a, we need to, are we going to talk about that now? Yeah. Did you see the, did you see that was literally the next bullet point? I don't know if you saw it. Oh, oh no. Okay. No, I didn't, I didn't get down that far. The last examples I will bring up for this bonus is the summer break divergence, right? So this is a concrete example of why things outside of school matters a lot. So a lot of kids, if they are from a well-off family, they will have summer activities. Basically, their their mental activity is sustained over summer. And then there are some kids where they might have to work, they might have to help out, or they just don't have the resources to go through those, you know, quote unquote, summer activities, summer camps. And they found this is a huge predictor of how well kids do. Absolutely. Because summer break is very, very long. So if you have the resources to sustain mental activity over summer, your kid just going to be better off, right? So you can't say, it's another reason why you can't say, oh, this is a bad school. It's because summer break is completely outside of school. It has nothing to do with school. Yeah. You see a very stark difference between kids that have access to resources over summer versus kids that don't. So, you know, we could have a discussion around the number of days our kids in school, right? So I think we have 180 schools. School days and a lot of the other places that are sort of outperforming us these days, I think they have 240 school days or like way more school days than we have. I personally think our kids should be in school more than they are. But at a minimum, we should not have two and a half month summer break. Yeah. We are no longer reaping and sowing fields no, that was in an the spring artifact. and that the summer. That was a cultural artifact. Yeah. We're not doing that anymore. We don't need these long breaks. Yeah. I think it would be great. You want to have a month off in the summer? You want to do a month off in the winter? Great. Yeah. But have them spread out so that you have less time. So my kids right there in school right now, (laughs) I swear the first like six weeks that they are back in school 
after break, they're just relearning all the that they forgot over the summer. Like, no joke. They're like, oh, we're just doing all these reviews and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, why are you spending the first two because months? Because teachers know. Teachers know that kids lose things over summer. Exactly. But this is my point. This is what makes me so mad. Why have we retained this stupid summer system Yeah. where we have these really long breaks and then kids are f- losing all of this knowledge that they've gained? It just mm-hmm. like we're setting our kids up for failure unless you're in a situation where you can afford to send them to camp. Yeah. And not every family has that capacity. And even in communities where there's resources for um, kids who might not be able to afford it, there are very scarce number of slots that you can go to. So it's yeah, just yet another thing where it's like we don't have equal opportunity. Yeah, I'm with you on the one. There are definitely several summers where a month in, I'm just like, okay, I can start doing things now. <laughs> you know, like and a month gives people plenty of time to take vacation, to travel if they want to. Yeah, you know, okay, sure, maybe for the older kids, they don't get a summer job. Okay, but like, would you rather have a kid working a summer job for a month <laughs> and having better educational performance or two and a half months and then they have to relearn a bunch of at the beginning of the school year. And I would love to have a month in winter. Oh my gosh, it'd be amazing. Like between first and second semester, I would love to have a month there. Well, we have a month at Hopkins, but... Well, right, but Hopkins is not exactly public school. I mean, I don't have a month because I'm not a student, so like I have... You have constant work. ...things I have to do. But I think it would be great like if the kids got off the month of December and the month of June or July. Maybe it's the last two weeks of December, first two weeks of January to sort of get around the new year. And then maybe it's, you know, July. That way we can have off 4th of July and and whatever. And I'm not saying we should get rid of all the other holidays in between. You know, we should still get off Labor yeah, Day, yeah, of Memorial course. Day and things. But like, we should really split that up. Yeah, it was definitely my feeling over summer. A lot of summers, I'm just like, this is, I need to start doing things now. <laughs> this is a little too long. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Public Health Plus, the show after the show. You can expect these more spicy and opinionated episodes every Monday. If you like the show, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. It really does help us immensely and spread the word about the show. Join us every Thursday for our main episodes. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.